Hello and welcome to the Science of Everything podcast. I'm your host, James Fodor. In this podcast, I discuss a wide variety of topics in both the natural and social sciences, exploring the many fascinating scientific discoveries that help us better understand the world around us. This is episode number five, and the topic for today is corporate conspiracies. So in this episode, I'm going to examine the issue of corporate conspiracy theories, particularly the alleged suppression by the drug companies of the cure for cancer, and the alleged sabotage by oil companies of the electric car. And you may not think that this is really a science issue so much as a political issue, but actually economic analysis and game theory can provide us with important insights into the true incentives and constraints that these firms actually face and can therefore yield very important insights that help us to understand how probable these conspiracies are to occur. And so that's what I'm going to focus on in this podcast. So first I'm going to talk about the suppression of the cure for cancer, then I'm going to move on to the suppression of the electric car, and I'll conclude with a a more general uh, game theoretic analysis of sort of grand conspiracy theories. Okay, suppression, suppression of the cure for cancer. The conspiracy argument here is that drug companies have already found a cure for cancer, but are deliberately covering it up in order to make higher profits off, off of expensive cancer treatments. Now, the, what I want to focus on here is whether or not it would actually be in the interest of drug companies to do this, and whether or not it would be possible for them to do this even if they wanted to. So, first of all, I'm going to set up the situation. So, suppose that a drug company has developed a cure for cancer that is relatively simple to produce and that only needs to be taken once in order to work. Now, this will be contrasted with the existing treatments, which we will suppose must be taken once per day for the remainder of one's life in order to uh, treat the cancer. Now, to simplify the situation, let's suppose that the in either case of the treatment or the cure, the individual has five years to live. And also suppose that the quality of life, their health and so on, in these remaining five years would be the same in either case. So basically there's no difference between taking the treatment and taking the cure, except for the fact that the treatment needs to be taken once a day for five years, the cure needs to be only taken once at the start of that period, and then and then you're fine for the rest of it. Now the purpose of this is just to simplify the model as much as possible to get down to the core difference of the once-off of the, of the cure versus the, the multiple times of the treatment, which is really the key issue in this in this case. Now also suppose that a single company has developed uh, treatments and the cure and has patents over both and so only they are able to sell them. Now let's have a look at the incentive at the incentives facing such a firm. Now in this case the firm would charge a monopolist's price for either the treatment or the cure. Obviously they would only sell one or the other because if they sold the cure no one would want the treatment. Now, the, monopolist pr- the monopolist's price is defined as the price that would produce the largest overall profits for the firm. Now, obviously, this, the, pr- the firm wouldn't just charge as high a price as they liked because eventually uh, the, it would reach a point where people wouldn't be able to afford the, the drug anymore and so they would actually sell less than if they charged a lower price. And so the monopolist's price is the, the price level that sort of balances out this, uh, the, the two competing factors Um, and produces the highest overall profits for the firm. The limit of this price will be the willingness of the consumers uh, to pay for the treatments or the cure. In this case, that will probably be limited only by the income of the consumers because it's their life that's at stake, so there's probably not too much limit of how much they are willing to pay. It's just how much they are able to pay. 
then the question is how much would consumers be willing to pay for the treatments compared to the cure? And the answer is that we would expect consumers to be willing to pay exactly the same price for both the treatment and the cure because they both yield five additional years of life. They both give essentially the same benefits, so we would expect consumers to be willing to pay the same amount for both of them, particularly if we assume that the consumers are just paying as much as they can afford. There would be no difference in the amount that they would pay for either the cure or the treatments. Thus, we would expect the company to be indifferent between selling the cure and selling the treatment, because they would earn the same amount of revenue either way. However, we must also consider the costs of production, as profits are determined by sales revenues minus costs, and not just sales revenues alone. In this case, it is clear that the drug company would prefer to produce the cure, as by the assumption that we've made in this analysis, it is cheaper to produce than the treatment. Indeed, the company would still prefer to produce the cure even if it were more expensive to produce than the treatment, as long as the additional cost per dose was balanced out by the increased number of doses that, uh, of the treatment that the firm would have to produce in order to uh, yield the same amount of revenue. So, basically, the idea is that consumers would be willing to pay the same for either the five-year stock of treatments or for the one-off cure, but because the firm must produce more treatments than the cure you know, because by definition you have to take a lot of treatments as opposed to only one cure, the firm would make higher profits by selling the cure because it would only it would have lower costs of production with the same revenue. So in this case we see that even a monopolist firm, a monopolist drug company with the cure and a treatment doing the same thing, would prefer to produce the cure because they would make higher profits. Now, the obvious rebuttal to this is that the individuals would actually be able to pay more for the treatment than the cure as it would enable to the, it would enable them to spread the payments over a longer period of time you know over 5 years rather than having to pay all uh, up front at once for the cure and they wouldn't and the argument would be that they wouldn't have enough money to pay it up front and so they would pay less for the cure than they would over time for the treatments However, it would be totally possible for the drug company to arrange installment plans by which individuals paid uh, off their cure for their the bill for their cure over a number of years or over a five year period, just as many stores at the moment offer interest free no deposit purchases of televisions, white goods, computers, and all sorts of things over two three over periods of two or three years. Another possibility is that the bank would be willing to lend money to these uh, to sick people with their employment income or pension earnings acting as as collateral for that. Um, just as we can now take our consumer loans to buy a house or a car. So we see that there are several different possible mechanisms by which the individual could sort of bring forward the, the payments that they would make over a period of five years for the treatment and concentrate them on the single one-off one payment for the cure. And this would allow the company to earn the same amount from the to have the same amount of revenue from the cure and the treatment, but as we've seen, their costs of production would be lower with the cure and so, in fact, they would prefer to produce the cure as they would earn more profits. So, in conclusion, we see that if we actually apply the economic theory and think through the situation, we can determine that even a purely greedy, totally self-interested, monopolistic drug company would not want to suppress a cure for cancer because the cure would make more money than the treatment. Key point here is we don't need to assume any benevolence on behalf of the, of the company at all. It's pure uh, incentives that they're facing. And this is what I'm going to emphasize throughout this podcast is that it doesn't matter how you know horrible or greedy they are. It's just a matter of let's analyze the actual incentives that they face and the actual constraints that they face 
and use that to determine uh, the behavior that they would actually uh, participate in. And this is what economic analysis is all about. Now I'd like to point out a few additional considerations which in the real world would also make it much less likely that, uh, that, a, that a cure for cancer could ever be suppressed. One uh, fact of, that's fairly obvious is that any firm that developed a cure for cancer would be very concerned that another company could come up with the same or a different cure and therefore their treatment would become worthless. So that would be a significant risk for them to take. Also, th there's the other factor of the friends and relatives of the executives and the employees of the conspiring company also get cancer. And so would they also be denied the treatment in a conspiracy um, like this? That's, or would they be denied the cure, I should say? That's a bit... Of questionable. I don't know how that would work. Another thing to consider is that if the conspiracy was ever discovered, the company's reputation would be totally destroyed. They would, you know, go bankrupt and they'd probably be sued by lots of people and uh, it would be a not a very good situation for the company. Now, the fact that companies spend billions of dollars every year on brand advertising not just advertising specific deals or products, mind you, just pure brand advertising. Think, for example, of the ads of where, where celebrities or whatever are just drinking Coke or whatever. They're not really saying anything specific about the Coke. They're just putting their brand out there. All, all the company is doing in those ads is promoting their, their brand name, their reputation. So this tells us that companies value their reputation a lot. They're willing to spend billions of dollars to, to uh, build it up. So it's not something that they're going to throw away lightly. This therefore tells us that a policy or which would have a significant risk of totally destroying the brand's reputation would not be would almost certainly not be in their interest to do. And then of course finally there is the difficulty of uh, coordinating the conspiracy with the hundreds of people who would be required to to uh, to keep it secret. Um, and I'll talk more about that in the last section of this podcast where I go into the the game theoretic analysis of conspiracy theories. So that's the analysis of the suppression for cure for cancer. Now let's move on to the suppression of the electric car. Now the argument here is that big oil companies take various nefarious actions, for example by buying up patents, um, to stifle the development and production of electric cars and other alternative energy technologies, presumably because such technologies would reduce the demand for oil and hence reduce uh, oil company profits. And this is very famously put forth in the um, movie Who, Who Killed the Electric Car. Uh, once again, uh, as we did in The Cure for Cancer, let's uh, set up a situation here that will allow us to analyze the situation. So imagine that a car was developed that had the same range, the same endurance, the same interior features, the same acceleration and performance, everything the same as a normal comparable car, um, and that also costs the same to buy and to produce. The only difference was that it ran on electricity, a plug-in electric car let's say, and as a result fuel costs were half of what they would have been for an equivalent petrol car. And this assumption is important I think because if we assume that alternative energies are significantly more expensive than fossil fuels then there's really no need to uh, suppose a conspiracy. It's just fairly obvious that they're not competitive. Really this co this conspiracy only becomes relevant if we're assuming that um, that alternative energies are cost competitive with fuel, uh, with with conventional fuels, but have been suppressed by the oil companies to pr protect their profits. That's only that's the only situation when this becomes relevant. So that's what we'll focus on here. Now, in this case, it should be fairly obvious that any firm producing such a vehicle, as we, as as outlined in uh, in this example, would quickly gain an enormous market share at the expense of all the other car companies, as their car is just as good as all the others, but significantly cheaper to run. 
Now, the result of this would be a reduction in the demand for oil, and hence oil companies would lose revenues. So, unlike the initial case uh, that we looked at of the cure for cancer, in this case it would be in the interest of oil companies to to eliminate such uh, alternative energy or electric car technologies if they could do so at, at little or no cost to themselves, if they could just sort of flick off the technology, so to speak. It would be in their interest to do that because uh, such successful alternative energy technology would reduce the demand for oil and hence would reduce oil company profits. However, it's the conspiracy theory is never that the oil companies just, you know, wave a magic wand and get rid of it and get rid of electric car technologies. It's that they actually do something to uh, eliminate them or to suppress them. Usually the argument is that they purchase up the patents required for the batteries or something like that or carry out similar me measures to um to prevent the technology from going forward. So let's suppose that an oil firm buys the battery patent that's necessary for the development of an electric car. And then we must ask, how much would the company developing the electric car be willing to pay the oil company to, for this patent, either as an upfront purchase of the patent or as a license fee over time for, for use of the patent technology? In either case, it doesn't make any difference. Now, the answer is that the uh, electric car company would be willing to pay anything up to the total value of the extra profits that they would expect to earn as a result of selling the electric car. And that's, you know, fairly intuitive. However much revenue they expect to get as a result of buying the patent is the amount that they'd be willing to pay for the patent, the maximum amount. And then, therefore, the question is, well, how much extra profits would they earn as a result of selling the electric car? And the answer is that the extra profits would be roughly equal to the present value of the amount of money that consumers would save in fuel as a result of shifting to electric cars as the cars the electric cars are identical in all other respects so it's only a question of relative fuel costs so basically consumers are, are going to be willing to pay whatever they would save in fuel costs by shifting from conventional to electric cars um, and that is equivalent to the profits that the electric car company would earn, and that therefore is equivalent to the amount that the electric car company would be willing to pay to the uh, owner of the battery patent. Now, this amount of money that consumers would save in fuel is exactly equal to the amount of money that the oil industry would lose in lower gasoline sales. Think about it. The oil company loses, will lose a certain amount of gasoline revenues as a result of... Um, reduced demand, but that would be exactly equal to the amount that consumers would save on gasoline, which therefore would be equal to the increase in profits that the electric car company would earn, as consumers would be willing to pay a premium of up to the amount of, ga of gas money that they would save for the car, which is for the electric car, which is identical in all other respects to the conventional car, and will it will also assume identical costs of production for, for, sim for simplicity. And so that, in turn, is exactly the same as the amount of money that the electric car company is willing to pay for the patent. So even if the oil company was a monopolist in its market, it would be indifferent between selling the patent uh, to the electric car company and getting uh, revenues as a result of that, or between not selling the patent and retaining its uh, oil revenues from the, its existing sources, its existing customers. In reality, however, the oil and gas industry is not monopolistic, but it's relatively competitive. I mean, yes, you do have OPEC, but there are many different companies that are involved. Shell, BP, etc. And many different countries as well, all competing for different sales. So the single company that owned the battery patent 
would be glad to sell it to the electric company as it would gain as the price that it would earn from sale of the patent would be equal to the total amount of revenue lost by the oil industry whereas the that single oil company would only lose a fraction of that uh, total revenue uh, proportional to its market share of the oil industry so it would always be better off for the for the oil company to sell this patent to the electric car firm and once again in the real world we also need to consider the fact that any company holding back a new battery technology or anything like that would be concerned about the possibility of another company developing a similar technology and if they did so then the initial patent would become effectively worthless or worth much less at least um, and so the company would lose a great opportunity also, it is likely that the electric cars would produce, uh, sorry, would possess a number of intrinsic advantages over conventional cars. For example, a smoother ride, less noise, environmental benefits, etc. And so they would enjoy a premium price that would further increase their competitiveness relative to gasoline-powered cars. And this is important because the greater price premium electric cars enjoy over conventional cars, the more consumers are willing to pay for them. Therefore, the higher profits, the higher revenues that the electric car companies are going to be able to earn as a result of selling electric cars and therefore the more money that the electric company car company is going to be willing to pay in order to purchase a patent like a battery patent etc so that makes it even these intrinsic advantages of electric cars make it even less likely that there would be any kind of conspiracy to prevent the patents from being uh, to prevent them from being produced i should also note that the, the analysis that I've conducted is consistent with the fact that most of the major oil companies are actually investing significant amounts of money in alternative and renewable energies. I've got a number of links on my notes page to, to some examples of that. And it's not surprising when you think about it because the oil companies aren't stupid. They know that oil, that global oil production's going to peak relatively soon and also that as a result of global warming we're probably going to be transitioning to alternative uh, fuel sources. So they are in a sense hedging their bets and investing in uh, what is going to be the, the future of energy technologies. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to uh, the final part of this podcast, which is a game theoretic analysis of uh, grand conspiracy theories, sort of big conspiracy theories which involve a large number of people. I'm not really talking so much about the smaller conspiracy theories which we know do happen, which involve a relatively small number of people in a relatively narrow field. Examples would be, for example, the Watergate situation the Iran and the Iran-Contra affair, two, two key um, examples. But these grand conspiracies are things like suppression of a cure for cancer or suppression of an, ele an electric car, or a governmental example would be suppression of um, an alien visitations over many decades. Really big things that would involve large numbers of people. Game theory is a branch of applied mathematics. Um, and it's useful because it can provide us with important insights about the incentives uh, facing uh, people involved in conspiracies or the attempts to cover up actions or, or things like that. Now, every such grand conspiracy can be thought of as a giant prisoner's dilemmas game. And a prisoner's dilemmas game is basically a situation where each participant would be better off if they all cooperated, for example, if they all upheld the conspiracy, but where each individual also has an incentive to cheat on the uh, conspiracy. And so you expect, it's called a prison's dilemma, because you expect the optimal outcome for all the participants never to be reached because everyone has an individual incentives to cheat or to defect. An example of this is an advertising war between between companies. Say, if, if, Coke, and, if Coke and Pepsi 
both never advertised, then presumably they would both still have their, the same market share of the um, soft drink industry that they that they that they do. If they both advertised, the, then it's quite possible that the relative their relative market shares wouldn't change, except that both of them would have to spend money on advertising. So both of them would make lower profits if they both advertised. So the best outcome for Coke and Pepsi would be if neither of them advertised. However, it's in the incentive of both firms individually to advertise, because if the other firm doesn't advertise, then it's better off for you to advertise, because you you can increase your market share. And so each firm is always going to have the incentive to advertise, and so both firms will end up advertising, and they will be therefore unable to reach the better situation for both of them where neither of them advertise. That's a classic example of the prisoner's dilemma. So in the case of a grand conspiracy, it's there are more than two players. There are probably many hundreds of people required to keep the conspiracy going. And so the incentives to defect on the conspiracy uh, are significant. Um, and they would include, for example, a desire to get a lighter sentence or avoid prosecution entirely as a result of revealing the conspiracy, a desire to get out of the conspiracy before someone else reveals it and leaves you holding the bag, so to speak, and also a desire to earn money to earn money and fame by selling the story to the media, producing book deals, etc. So any grand conspiracy like this is going to have big incentives for individuals to defect. Now, it was I tried to look up for a lit- literature on game theoretic analysis of conspiracy theories like this, and I couldn't really find very much. But there is a fair amount of analysis on cartels, which is uh, a, a collusive arrangement between producers in an industry to keep prices high and, and, and quantity sold lower. And cartels are really similar in many aspects from from conspiracies, except that they are well, they're more probable than the grand conspiracies that um, that I, that I've been now analysing previously. But from a game theoretic perspective, they're quite similar. So a lot of the information that I have that I will present subsequently is derived from an analysis of cartels. But uh, just remember that it applies to grand conspiracies as well. Okay, so what I'm going to do is analyze some of the mechanisms by which cartels can attempt to solve the prisoner's dilemma, because there are different means that they can attempt to do so, and then I will examine why such practices are not really applicable in the in the place of grand conspiracy theories. So basically, there are me- mechanisms in the real world by which cartels and other organizations or indivi- or bodies of individuals can attempt to overcome uh, the the problems of the uh, of the prisoner's dilemma and maintain a conspiracy. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that they don't really work in the case of a grand conspiracy, and I'll explain why. Okay, so first of all, let's have a look at trust. Trust is a very effective mechanism by which the prisoner's dilemma can be overcome and a better outcome obtained for both parties. And that should be fairly intuitive as to why that's the case. Trust is best maintained by repeated exchanges or relationships between individuals. So if you've engaged in some kind of transaction with someone 50 times before and they've always um, kept to their word those 50 previous times, you can be fairly certain that they will on the 51st time. And that build-up of trust can be uh, useful for overcoming the problems of the prison dilemma. However, trust becomes very difficult to maintain in larger groups, as coordination difficulties become extremely severe uh, between individuals, and in particular, individuals find it very difficult to monitor the actions of others. So if you can't really monitor the actions of other people in the conspiracy, if you don't even know everyone else in the conspiracy, it's very difficult to you know, to have any trust for them, to really know if they're going to maintain the conspiracy or not. 
and that lack of trust significantly undermines the coherence of the of the conspiracy. Historical examples and theoretical analysis both demonstrate that trust is crucial for maintaining cartels and by implication conspiracy theories, both for initially overcoming the prisoner's dilemma and also in order to make it more effective to carry out the, if you like, administrative work required to maintain the cover-up, maintain the conspiracy. It's not just implementing it in the first place, it's keeping it. It's keeping it uh, working, keeping it hidden, and there are certain communication and transactions that need to take place in order for that to happen. The bigger the conspiracy is, the much more difficult it is to carry out these sorts of things. And studies have found various economic experiments have found that trust is lower and ability to maintain uh, relationships like this is lower as the groups become larger. So, therefore, it is not surprising that uh, economic studies have also found that prolonged cartels are rare in most industries because it's just too hard to coordinate and maintain trust between such a large group of, uh, of people or, in, in the case of cartels, a large group of corporations. Similarly, in the grand conspiracy theories, it's just going to be too difficult to maintain the trust and cohesion amongst such a large group of people. The bigger the conspiracy, the less likely it is uh, to, to, uh, to maintain coherence. Another fact factor is communication, which helps to build trust and facilitate cooperation and coordination between parties. Another factor which can be significant in maintaining cartels, and therefore conspiracies, are social relationships and personal relationships amongst cartel members. And these can help to facilitate trust, communication, and a sense of camaraderie, which can be useful in maintaining the cartel. And group identity and social norms can be important uh, to, to, to facilitate this cooperation. And, and studies have shown that it is more likely that individuals will cooperate with each other when they perceive themselves to be part of some mutual group. And that could be partially, uh, incidentally, that could partially be an explanation for racism and other things like that, as we, we feel less... Uh, likely to be willing to cooperate with people whom we perceive to be different to us. There are a number of m mechanisms by which one can establish group identity. Uh, for example, you can have an official group name, protocols, uh, for example, trade, or, trade associations in the case of cartels. You can have goodwill gestures between parties of the cartel, social gatherings, family connections, complex networks of interdependent business or personal relationships, etc. All of these things help to build up a sense of social camaraderie and group belonging. And that can really help to maintain cartels and also maintain conspiracies. But as we can see, once again, as the, as the conspiracy becomes larger and more diverse, it becomes much less likely that this kind of group uh, identity is going to be able to be maintained, and particularly for something like a cure for cancer, where you're going to have to have all sorts of different individuals, uh, from scientists to maybe uh, accountants, security individuals, executives, maybe certain family members of the executives, all going to have to be involved in it. Um, these are very d d diverse range of people, and it's going to be very difficult for you to maintain any kind of social cohesion or relationship amongst them. So. In conclusion, we can see that the kind of mechanisms by which cartels can be maintained, particularly by facilitating trust, communication, keeping the group small and, and socially coherent, are just not going to work for the grand conspiracies. They're going to be too big, they're going to be too diverse, and in particular, they're going to change too much over time. As if you're attempting to maintain these conspiracies for decades on end, as many conspiracy theorists do argue, um, it's going to get increasingly difficult for you to maintain that 
uh, sense of coherence and, and identity and coordination as in, as some individuals are retiring and moving out of the conspiracy and, and then new individuals are moving into it. That's just going to be incredibly difficult for you to coordinate. And as a result, it's going to be there are going to be large incentives for individuals to defect from the conspiracy because of the significant incentives for individual defection mentioned before. Also, I should point out that as the group becomes more uh, larger and more diffuse and less less coherent, your expectation that other individuals, that someone else somewhere in the conspiracy is going to uh, is going to defect will increase. I mean, just think about it. If there are only 10 people in the conspiracy, then there are 10 possible uh, means by which it can be exposed. But if there are 100 people in the conspiracy, there's 100 possible ways in which it can be exposed. So the more people, just sheer, by sheer probability, the more likely it is that the conspiracy is going to be exposed somehow. And therefore, the more likely you perceive it that someone else in the conspiracy is going to expose it. And therefore, the more likely it is that you yourself will choose to expose the conspiracy rather than be the one left holding the bag. Because if the conspiracy is going to be exposed, it's better for you to do the exposing because then you get the benefits of reduced prosecution, maybe media deals, etc., rather than someone else being exposing it and you being the one left in the conspiracy. So as a result of these of these incentives, which we can which I've just been analysing from a game theoretical perspective, this idea of, of um, you expecting someone else to do something and then changing your behaviour as a result. That's what game theory is all about. As a result of such analysis, we can see that grand conspiracies like cancer and electric car are just not going to be able to be maintained. The coordination difficulties and incentives for defection are simply too great. So, in conclusion, application of sound economics and game theory principles has enabled us to determine that neither of the two major conspiracies examined here is actually in the interest of the companies alleged to be responsible for them. Neither oil companies nor drug companies would actually profit from suppressing cancer cures or electric car technology. They would be worse off by doing so. Further, even if they were better off by doing so, such conspiracies would be too complicated, too large, and too difficult to properly maintain in the face of the overwhelming incentives that would exist to cheat on them. So that's all I have for this podcast. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, then please help to spread the word about this podcast by posting a review on iTunes or uh, some other aggregator website, or by sharing the podcast with somebody you know. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about the podcast, please feel free to contact me uh, at fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. You can also find the show notes for this podcast and leave comments at fods12.podbean.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.